0: Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randall's. You'll find
1: great deals on grilling favorites and more everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randall's, proudly serving Texas families since 1966.
0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. This is Daniel LaRue, your host, and thanks again for listening in. This week we have two guests. The first one is Andrew Perna of Real GM. He primarily focuses on the Eastern Conference, so we talk originally about the Pacers and then about the Celtics and the Bucks, with some Giannis in there. And it goes for about 37 minutes. We hit on the rest of the Eastern Conference, too. Second, we have a guest that I really wanted to have on early on, and that's Jonathan Santiago of Cowbell Kingdom. He knows the Sacramento situation with the ownership and the potential relocation changes better than just about anybody I know. And I felt like his, his insight into that process was a perspective that was important as one of the biggest stories that's happened in the NBA the last year or two. And then we also talk about the Kings in their current form. So hope you enjoy it. First up is Andrew Perna, and thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Andrew for coming on.
1: Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, getting Real GM Radio restarted.
0: My pleasure. Uh, first thing seems great to start is that you have a lot of you spend a lot of time watching the Pacers, and I wanted to for you to walk through it as somebody who watches all of their games as, to somebody who has watched a little bit less than that. Well, I mean, I think
1: uh, the biggest thing about when you know when you sit down and you watch a Pacers game is there's going to be times when they're highly entertaining and times when it's highly unentertaining. If you watched any of last night's game uh, against Memphis, you saw, you know, Lance Stevenson getting out on the break a lot, a lot of quick, easy buckets, which, to the casual fan, I guess, is the most entertaining form of basketball. Uh, But usually that's not really the Pacers' brand. Frank Vogel likes to go to the well on the smash-mouth basketball um, talk a lot. So they prefer to, obviously, play defense, leading the league in opponent field goal percentage of opponent points, things like that, and that's the typical style of play. On a nightly basis, you'll see games, lower scoring games than than you would like last night where they just look pretty good offensively. Obviously, you know, starting out as the only undefeated team in the league right now, um, there's a lot more national talk about them than even we saw last year, I think, when they took, you know, Miami to the seventh game. And uh, I'm interested to see what you think about this, but I think the number one thing from them so far this season has just been the continuity. I mean, in all of the teams, in all of the contending teams, they're one of the few that kind of brought back the same, you know, starting fives intact, the bench has been redone, but a majority of the minutes are going to guys, you know, that were playing the majority of the minutes last season.
0: Yeah, I wrote before the season that I kind of put, I put a tier together of the Bulls and the Pacers and the Nets, then we'll see if the Nets fit into that, and the logic of it, part of it, was that I think the Pacers needed to start out strong because they had such a big advantage by keeping their core together, and as much as it would be nice to have Danny Granger, he wasn't a a part of their success last year, so missing him in that same sense actually increases their continuity.
1: Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt, and I, and and I agree 100% with that. You know, a hot start is important for them for you know for a number of reasons because I think you're going to see, you know, the Chicago's and 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 the Brooklyn's had to or are currently going through that transitional period of working in, you know, uh, the Bulls in Derrick Rose, not a new player, but obviously their leader after not having him, and and the Nets working in, uh, you know, Garnett and Pierce into their fold the Pacers, it's very important for them to gain as many games as they can in the standings now. When, number one, the schedule has been a little lighter. Uh, you know, they did have some big wins, uh, you know, against the Bulls and Nets, but the schedule has been lighter. It's given them a chance to kind of pad that win total. Uh, and also, you know, Win Granger, assuming he does, the news is he's going to practice tomorrow. Uh, they have, you know, several days off this week. So, you know, there's conceivable scenario where he's going to return maybe within a week or two. So what does that do to the team? That's very important. But the other thing I think that the front office focused on this offseason was the bench. And as much continuity as they've had from the starting five that, you know, is the starting five that they had last season and, you know, they returned all those minutes is, the, you know, the Louis Scollas and, and the C.J. Watsons, and, and what they've brought to the bench this year as opposed to how poor it was last year where, a, such a high percentage of their production, be it points, be it defense, had it come from that starting five. They actually have a bench unit now that's capable of scoring, that's capable of keeping up the energy. And I think, and the Pacers think, that in hopes Granger can either fortify that bench by joining the bench or by, you know, bumping down a Lance Stevenson, who after last night's triple-double doesn't look like he's, you know, ready uh, to come out of the starting lineup can fortify that bench even further and, you know, just add more depth to the team. And the thought process also is that Granger, in the position that he's in with his contract, is going to be a good soldier. You know, he's not going to want to disturb the chemistry because for him, his next contract is more going to reflect, I think, how he assimilates with these pacers than whether or not he can return to that previous level where he was the number one.
0: That's a good point on Granger. One thing that I've focused on, at least in this early part, and you never hope to have it in the beginning of a season, but the acquisition of CJ Watson has already paid dividends with George Hill having to miss time.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you think you look back to last year, and, and with, in if Hill had to miss any time, you know, Vogel had to throw out DJ Augustine. And I mean, DJ Augustine is a former lottery picker guy that came into the league, people thinking, you know, he could be a lead You know, point guard, he could be one of the best as that position has kind of become more and more important in the league. And there were times last year where when he was pushed into duty, the Pacers just struggled. And, you know, not just talking about as, you know, a second unit player, but like you mentioned, when when George Hill's out, if you have to go to D.J. Augustine, um, it was a little rocky. You know, they they had to go to him uh, in the postseason last year. Um, and, and I think Augustine missed out on a huge opportunity in that New York series to kind
0: of reinvigorate
1: his value a little bit, and as crazy as it sounds, you know, he might have cost himself a few million by not putting up a huge game when he had that opportunity. So I have a C.J. Watson that can come in, he can create his own shot, he's more, he's more confident in, in his own offense than you might even see a guy like George Hill be, um, because George Hill is out there usually with you know, guys like Paul George and West and Edward Stevenson. You know, watching him come in, provide it's an offense, and to drop off isn't quite as vast as it was at the point the competition position last year.
0: One guy that we haven't talked about as much yet, and I'm sure is going to be a factor in this, is the, to me the biggest factor as much as the Im- improved bench has been for the Pacers has been the just leap of of production for Paul George. And he was an absolutely fabulous player last year. He was I think he in some ways he was underrated as a player, though his potential was properly rated. But his offense in particular has come to a different level so far this year.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it is. I mean, to see where he's where he went from last October to early June in the Eastern in the Eastern Conference Finals, and then to see where he's gone from you know June to now, it's it's. It's amazing, and in talks with some people in the organization, they just, I mean, they expected it, they hoped for it, and, you know, they projected it, but they just shake their head and laugh when you talk about how quickly he's taken these steps, and the amazing turn of circumstances that kind of got him here. There has been, you know, some talk, in, in some writers that cover the patients regularly, and they kind of think, would this have happened, one, with Granger didn't go down last year, and two, how long would it have taken for this to happen if, you know, Granger didn't go down? But, I mean, you're 100% right, and his offensive game has just taken a huge leap that not many saw happening over such a short-term period. I mean, last year, it was, you know, he's an amazing defender, still an amazing defender. The offense kind of comes and he's not the type of number one player who has plays drawn through him and stuff like that. This season you're seeing him more confident in his jumper. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know he's getting to the foul line a lot more, which was a point of contention on the organization. They wanted him attacking the baskets more getting to the foul line, being more in that true number one role where you can put some pressure on the defense by racking up the fouls and also just attacking the ribs. If he can continue along this line, you know, he's gonna to continue to be added into the conversation of, you know, the best wing players. I mean, already we've heard people talk about, you know, what what two way player, you know, is better than Paul George. You know, you have the Leron Jameses of the world and stuff like that, but he's he's entering a conversation where I don't think many people in the organization thought it would be possible at the beginning of last season and they might have seen it towards the end of last season but they definitely didn't see it happening this fast.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was something that Ethan Schrottstrauss and I talked about last week and that people have always embraced the potential of Paul George, but I don't think any of us saw that potential turning into success as quickly as it did. And it's really incredible.
1: Oh, it is. And and it and it goes down to his work ethic number one. He's a very smooth player and he doesn't have the kind of lackadaisical look that, you know, some some smooth players have where it doesn't look like they're trying, but He's a very smooth player, and that, I think, sometimes goes against him, but he has a tremendous work ethic. The Pacers rave about his, you know, how much how time he spends in the gym, how good of a kid he is, and I think that's helped him because the Pacers have embraced him. They've put forward, you know, wanting to to see his game mature, wanting to put him in good positions to succeed, and this team, at least the starting unit, is very, very cohesive. And, you know, again, going back to that continuity of just bringing back the same five guys. But still, it makes a huge difference on a number of fronts. And with this team, it's the support they put in one another. You know, Roy Hibbert has already talked about this season about how he wants to see Paul George be the greatest pacer, you know, in NBA history. And, and you can start to think of what he might need to do to do that. Other teammates are trying to position, you know, Hibbert as a defensive player of the year. They have lofty goals, but they do it on a team basis. And I think that all really starts with Vogel and what they've got out of him and how they've built kind of this environment within the locker room of, you know, a team mentality.
0: One interesting thing as I was kind of prepping and looking up Paul George, obviously it's early samples, so, you know, talking about all that stuff. But what's really shocking to me is that his usage, so basically the way I think about usage is the amount of times that a possession ends with him, has gone up significantly but his efficiency has gone up too, and you were talking about his free throws. His free throw attempts have almost doubled while the proportion of them that he makes has gone up as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to use more of your team's possessions, obviously that jumps out off the page, but there's many cases where that occurs and, you know, your efficiency goes down. And, and with George's case, I think he worked on his jumper. Um, he's more confident in it. And when you add that on to, you know, like you said, double free-throw attempts, I mean, that's going to help you out. I mean, if he can continue to do that, then he's going to jump into that echelon of superstars and he's not going to be hurting the Pacers by, you know, being a 25 20 game scorer or think that's, mean, that's right around where he is right now. I mean, sometimes you look at those players and their volume scores, you know, classically in Allen Iverson, but if he's able to increase his efficiency, while using up more possessions, that's only good for the Pacers because if there was any knock on them last season, it was that at times offense was a problem.
0: Another amazing thing about Paul George that gets lost in the shuffle sometimes is just how young he is. He's younger than Eric Bledsoe, who a lot of us talk about as, oh, when he gets to where he's going, he's going to be such an amazing player, and point guards are different. And he's also younger than Harden and DeMar DeRozan and Jimmy Butler. A lot of guys who... We give so much, we give a lot of credence with good reason, too, that they're going to grow their games and they're going to become so much better. And you think about what Paul George has done in that he's younger than all of those guys, that the jumps that he makes. I think of a guy, not saying he'll be the same type of player, but what Durant did his, uh, his first, you know, around when his first rookie contract ended.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's just 23 years old. And I mean, that's why, as high of expectations as the cases have this. Season, I mean, people have started to talk about how well set up they are for the future. I mean, at 23 years old, you think about what Paul George has done and the things that he's been able to improve and work on over his four years is, is kind of amazing, and that also takes me to Stevenson. I mean, Stevenson is 23 as well. I mean, these guys have improved tremendously over such a short period of time, and that is a testament to what the organization, I think, has done with both of them and the faith that they put in both of them, that they've been able to kind of go through these transformations over such a short period of time. And, you know, you mentioned a guy like Eric Bledsoe who's, you know, kind of breaking out a little bit now and and he's older than these guys, but you also have to think about he was in a Clippers organization that doesn't have the best track record in, in terms of how the front office handled things. And now he's with a different team. So you wonder how much that might, on his growth, whether it be now, whether it be later in the season. But, I mean, to have two young guys who at the same time have been through such a tremendous transformation transformation over the first few seasons is crazy, especially when you consider that they've done some great things with Hibbert as well.
0: With Hibbert, the, there are a lot of amazing things about what he's done despite it, but the block rate, he's blocking just a comically large amount of shots right now. Do you think that can be sustained?
1: I mean, I don't think it's sustainable because I think teams are going to learn what the best way is to attack him. Teams are going to maybe go at him more in a traditional way to try to get him in foul trouble. Um, He's got a lot of block off the weak side, off of David Westman uh, this season. And I think it's being talked about so much, his verticality and the way that he's able to kind of go straight up on defense, and, and, you know, some people contend that, you know, he, yeah, he does jump straight up, but there's got to be some motion where his arms are coming down a little bit. Teams are going to be able to learn, number one, learn to attack it slightly differently, and two, referees are going to start paying more attention. I mean, that's kind of what we see nowadays when 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 things like this are lauded or talked about. People start paying more attention. People think of different ways to attack it, and, and people start paying more attention to it. So, I don't think it's sustainable at this point. I mean, the guy's averaging, like, almost four and a half blocks a game. And it's incredible. I, it's, I'm not saying he's not going to lead the league in blocks, but he could do that by, you know, averaging three and a half. He doesn't have to average four and a half to do that. It's just it, – it seems crazy, and I don't think it's sustainable. I mean, it, it's a fun question to entertain, but, I mean, four and a half blocks, I mean, it's, it's crazy.
0: Another thing that I've noticed and I'm I I'll it'd be interesting to see if you feel the same is that it feels like referees are handling him a little bit differently now that his reputation is giving him the benefit of the doubt a little more than he had and that's also helped alleviate the foul concerns. I mean he's averaging 2.4 fouls a game now when he was that was always a problem for him.
1: Yeah, I mean in his first two seasons it was it was a disaster. Um you know his footwork was not nearly where it is now. His stamina isn't nearly where it is now. He just—I can't remember if it was year two or three—he, um, you know, discovered that he had kind of a, a sports asthma type issue where working out and running kind of invigor uh, aggravated it. Um, and he's gotten that under uh, under control now, so that's helped him. He's not nearly the same player. He doesn't even resemble the player that he was when he came out of Georgetown. So that's helped him, and I think kind of along the lines of what I said when we when we talked about whether four and a half blocks was sustainable, you know, people started to laud him for how he's able to jump straight up, how his position is, um, how his footwork has improved, how he's improved his strength to kind of body up against, you know, offensive players. So he's gotten more of the benefit of the doubt where he that he didn't get in his first two years Um, So that's really helped him. You know, like I said, I wonder if it's going to come to a tipping point where it's going to start to hurt him a little bit. But, I mean, in this league, unfortunately, reputation is a huge thing. And if referees respect his defensive ability, then he's going to get that benefit of the doubt against most players in the league because there are so few dominant offensive, traditionally dominant offensive post players, that he's going to have the better reputation in most cases.
0: That makes, that makes a lot of sense. What do you, if you had to identify the biggest need moving forward for this Pacers team, let's say in, in, if their goal was to make it to the NBA Finals, what would you identify as that as the, ne- as the next thing, if they need anything? It could be nothing to get them there.
1: I mean, at this point, when, you know, when you're 8-0 and they've been running out of the gates in the second half and just dominating team, it's easy to say, well, they just need to continue playing the way they're playing. But in reality, I think the regular season, I mean, and this is, for for this Indiana team, it's amazing to say this, to think of where they were three, four, five years ago. But the regular season doesn't mean a whole lot for them right now. I know Vogel pumps a lot about talking about getting the number one seed, but they have to consider themselves, and they do consider themselves, like a the San Antonio, like a Miami now, where it's like, let's just get us in the best position we can, and the playoffs are where it's really going to matter. And when they get into that postseason, I think the most important thing for them now, and we've seen some flashes of it, we talked about it a few minutes ago, is they need Paul George to be that traditional number one scorer. Because when you get into a seven-game postseason series, and they fought last year, they're going to need to consistently go to him, you know, late in the fourth quarter against Miami, and it's going to be him against LeBron, and it can't be, you know, a 70 30 proposition where LeBron's going to get the best out of him, the best of him, seven out of ten times. They need to make that more of a 50 50 proposition. And the way he's kind of already shown growth this season, it certainly seems like it might be something that they can achieve. And that's, I think, the number one goal for them if they want to represent the East, they want to get through Miami, and they want to be able to, you know, post against teams like the Bulls and the Nets and the Knicks.
0: They could add somebody like Jamal Crawford as a piece, as a piece off the bench if the Clippers find that they're happy enough with Reddick and the other pieces that they're going with. Do you think that he would be a logical kind of sixth man initiator for this
1: team? I think uh, that wouldn't be something that they would entertain until Granger is healthy back and given some time to uh, work back into this roster because, I mean, you think of just how difficult it would be to add in somebody like that as opposed to just seeing what you have in whether it's Granger going into the starting lineup and Stevenson going to the bench or Stevenson saying and Granger going to the bench. They really want to see what they're going to have. If Granger is going to be somebody who can be healthy, who can work, their way almost seamlessly back into the team, and if that's the case, that bench gets that much stronger, and they're not having to part with any sort of asset. So I think while it's def- while adding somebody like that to the bench is definitely a high priority, and that might be you know two or three on my list behind you know Paul George just further cementing himself as a number one. I think the organization at this point is much more comfortable waiting to see, waiting a few weeks, hopefully only. Um, to see what the return of Ranger brings and whether or not that's the offensive punch on the bench that they need.
0: There's a there's a sense, I've heard it talked around the NBA blogosphere, that Eric Bledsoe has made himself a lot of money. But to me, if you're talking about margin from where their value was from three weeks ago to now, the guy who's improved it the most is Lance Stevenson. Do you have a, a semblance of where, I mean, it's really early, but where his value is going to be? Because he's a free agent this summer.
1: Next yeah. Time. It's it's definitely not something that I think the Pacers thought they were gonna to have to worry about a year or two ago. Um, you think about where he was. He was a guy who um when they played Chicago in the first round of the postseason a few years ago, he was barely off the bench. Um when you know, he was he was getting more headlines for, you know, taunting on the bench against Miami than he was for his play on the floor. And now you look at him and he's positioned to I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot a lot in the past few days as well, and it's like you gotta think he's a guy who's probably at this point, as crazy as it may sound gonna get around what, eight, nine million at least, you gotta think that's where his market value is right now. And it's unbelievable to think that when you consider where he was a few years ago. And it's unbelievable when you consider the Pacers have two guys essentially on quote unquote max deals. Uh they signed David West to a healthy contract. Hill is, you know, right around that number on his own. Granger's coming off the books, but you have to wonder, are the Pacers going to pay him that type of money to be what right now is probably arguably the fourth most important player, but if he continues at this rate, does he become more important than that? So it's really a difficult situation for them right now. Um, I know Lance has said over and over again, I want to stay here, I want to stay here. He seems to be that type of loyal guy. He appreciates what the organization did for him. But when push comes to shove, if the Pacers, I mean, obviously the Pacers can offer him that money and more than anybody else could. But when push comes to shove, if the Pacers aren't willing to give him that much more, is he going to vote for more money? Or is he going to stay, you know, to be a part of what he's already you know, blossomed into, and in reality, as crazy as it sounds to be speculating about those numbers now, in truth, we'll know more towards the end of the season, because is he this guy that's going to flirt with a triple-double, or is he this guy that's going to kind of um, struggle when Granger does come back, because maybe he feels a little lack of confidence.
0: The thing that I would be scared about as a Pacers fan is that obviously LeBron is a very high level guy and Carmelo and they're they're going to get their money and nobody's really concerned about that. But if particularly if Rudy Gay picks up his player option, that next tier of swingman is a very very weak class this year. And there are guys who are interesting, Paul Pierce and things like that, but they're older and Stevenson could end up being, as an unrestricted free agent, because Gordon Hayward will be there, the most tantalizing piece, which could lead to an offer. Fortunately for the Pacers, though, some of the teams, like the Knicks, I'm thinking of, would that would be maybe more interested in offering in that deal, won't have the financial flexibility to do so.
1: Oh, and I mean, a team like it's funny that you bring up the Knicks, I mean, because New York, born and Bred Stevenson, I mean, you're right, the crop is going to be shallow, I think that adds to his value, but it's he tantalizing is the perfect word for him because I mean, there have been many a time prior to this season um, and maybe prior to midway through last season where I thought he was somebody that they had to shed. They had to get rid of him. I thought the unpredictability was, was too much for this team, especially the way they're built so strongly on defense. You know, he's a guy who still will kind of make a boneheaded play here or there. But I mean, if he's this, if he has the potential to be this good, can they let him go at this point? It's, it's definitely something that I know the front office didn't think was going to be as much of a problem. And somebody's going to throw a lot of money at him, and it's only a matter of how much Indiana wants to potentially cripple themselves in the future, you know, to keep him at this point. And it's, it's going to be difficult.
0: So we'll move on to the team that's closer to where you're actually based, and that's the Boston Celtics. They've had one of the more interesting—I don't even know if you can call it a trajectory, but an interesting path so far this season. Do you? Can you make sense of what they're doing and where they're going?
1: I mean, it's crazy because in a, in a city like Boston, where you could compare it to a New York and Philadelphia here on the East Coast, and being a lifelong East Coaster, that's my I guess, my bias, but. <laughs> After losing, you know, their first three four games, it was thanks for Wiggins. You know, this is going to be, you know, a really rough season, but maybe is the best thing that we should be doing right now. Brad Stevens is, you know, getting his feet wet in the NBA, and they're able to kind of learn without Rondo playing. You know, what they have in the rest of their roster, but now they go on a three four game win streak, and it's, you know, wow, can. Can they get that 6th, 7th, 8th seed? You know, not have, they don't have Rondo right now. They're playing really well as a team. And I think, unfortunately, they're somewhere in the middle. I don't see them as an out downright awful team. I also don't see them as somebody who's going to, you know, flirt for that 6th seed in the East, even with Rondo back. I think what they have going for them right now is kind of that really hard-to-quantify, no-expectation, around them, and they're just able to kind of play with a whole lot of heart. They have a whole lot of guys on that team that are going to give 100%, 110% the night, and I don't think you're going to see too many Crawford um, triple-doubles. Um, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of nights where Avery Bradley is shooting the lights out like he did last night, and uh, I think you're going to see you know, growing pains from some of the young guys that they brought in. And it's a difficult position to be in in the NBA because, you know, traditional wisdom suggests, well, if you're on the playoffs, you want to be really bad. But um, in actuality, the numbers show that, you know, you can't get too bad. And, uh, you know, the Celtics are going to be in a rough position um, going forward in the next few years. But, you know, assuming they keep Rondo, they have Jeff Green, and they're able to develop guys, um, the position they're in now might actually be better than, you know, a team that's just hopeful for lottery balls.
0: That's an interesting take on it. One thing that I've thought about with them is we, people talk a lot about how the Sixers could look dramatically different by the end of the year, that they could regress or buy – or not regress, but get worse by trading some of their better players. And to me, the Celtics are a more interesting case of that because some of their players are on more challenging contracts. So if Ainge could get out of Courtney Lee's deal or you know, if anybody kind of in that grouping – Establishes himself at a point where he can get an asset for them. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Danny Ainge make a move like that, which kind of clarifies the situation by losing a piece that they didn't see as a key part of their future.
1: Oh, I and, and that's one of the things that I really that I really like about Ainge as an executive. He is not a sentimental guy, so he's a guy that will, I think, not at all hesitate to try to turn any of those guys into something valuable for the future. And what I really thought all along from days after the Brooklyn trade was, if Ainge gets an offer, he'll trade Rondo in heartbeat, but ownership probably doesn't want him to. And that's still what I believe. Ainge is, he doesn't have the best uh, draft history, which makes it a little shaky when you're talking about adding assets in terms of picks, but he's a smart executive, and he'll part with somebody if he's able to, just like we saw with Carnett and Pierce. And I think that's probably the best way to go for them. I mean, you talk about a Courtney Lee who's not on the best contract. He's been really, I mean, for lack of a better word, he's been awful for, uh, for the Celtics. So he'll have to position him, and he'll have to put up some better numbers to increase his value. You um, talk about a Jeff Green who was overpaid, game-winning freeze against Miami notwithstanding. And a uh, Gerald Wallace who – I think it's pretty clear. Doesn't want to be here, and um, doesn't want to be in this situation. There's definitely going to be some pieces. It's a matter of what they can get, and really how low they're willing to go.
0: Can Sullinger and Olinik work together as a starting front court, or does one of them probably need to move into uh, the kind of the first big off the bench role long term?
1: I think long term it's going to have to be one of them off the bench. I mean, yes, Olenek is. Is early in his development, but um, I think a front, a starting front court or a front court that mainly features those two together, um, isn't going to really instill much fear um, in anyone in the East or West, for that matter. Um, Sellinger is, you know, a little undersized. He's been when healthy, he's been really good for the Celtics, um, but there's back issues there that you know came from Ohio State and. You know, supposedly he had gotten, you know, the, the green light coming out of college, and then, bam, you know, his, his season's ended, his rookie season ended with back issues. And they say, oh, it's that kind of should end the matter, and it's not going to be a chronic issue. But, I mean, that concerns me as well, more so than even just what they can be when both fully healthy.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Also, the, the the overall defensive picture with the two of them as a front court seems too grisly to really consider. But they make sense as pieces on a good team.
1: Yes, absolutely. They they are. I think you know those would have been great guys to have in the big three era. And you saw when healthy, you know what they could have. Uh, obviously, Olympic was not on the team at that point. But you know what, Sillinger was. You know, when they had all the big guns and everybody was healthy, Uh, Solinger was a great energy guy and, you know, an important piece on the contender. Uh, On a team like this, I think he's in a tough position because he's not the kind of guy who's going to go put up 20 and 10 and and get himself a big contract or or really help the Celtics win that way. Uh, Like you said, he's, he's a good guy to have on a good team, and that's really not where the Celtics are right now.
0: One other Eastern Conference thing I wanted to talk about with you is you wrote a piece on Monday about Giannis Antetokounmpo and kind of his fit within the whole Bucks future. And I was just kind of seeing what you think his role sh- should and will be over, let's say, the next two years while we're figuring out what he is.
1: Well, I think, you know, the Bucks kind of, you know, they draft them. And, you know, obviously if you're going to draft somebody, you're going to do your homework on them. And, you know, they knew that they were getting, you know, this young, lanky guy who, you know, had a ton of skills, who was still growing into his body, and they hoped could develop into, you know, a starting wing player in this league in the mold of, you know, some of the lankier wings we see in the league now. But when he came over and, Uh, I talked about a a little bit in my piece, you know, he came over a little later. He didn't play in summer league because he had some obligations to the Greek national team. But he came over, and they were just absolutely floored with his instincts, with just his play in general, with his maturity and and things of that nature, where they started to get, I think, a little ahead of themselves and think that he might be ready to play, you know, 10 minutes a game um, and get his feet wet in the league right now to hopefully further development, you know, further develop him down the line or develop him quicker. And I think what you saw is, you know, in the opener, I know he had a, he got a couple quick fouls called on him, you know, playing at Madison Square Garden, and, you know, that hurt him. Um, he was getting, you know, around 10 minutes in the first few games, and then you've seen him get some, you know, DNPs, um recently, even though, you know, the Bucks have a ton of injuries. So I think that kind of shows you the pump and the brakes a little bit. And I think the difficulty with, with Milwaukee and, and what they plan to do, to be honest, over the short term is they got to figure out where they are. And it's been difficult for them to do that because of the injuries they've had. You know, it enough today that, you know, Larry Sanders has you know, just had thumb surgery relating from that cloudy um, off court issue. And if they don't think they can sneak in as a seven or eight seed, then I think. When that realization hits them, they're going to start running them out more, because they've talked about how they feel it's more important and better for him to be getting, you know, minutes against top-level competition, than, you know, say, sending him to the D-League, uh, which they ruled out. But I think they hope isn't something that they will have to do uh, anytime soon because they have high hopes for him.
0: Were you as surprised as I was that they brought him over this early instead of letting him play with a high-level team in Europe?
1: I was. I was because he's because he doesn't have or he didn't bring a huge track record of playing with a high-level team in Europe or playing a lot of minutes with one. There's been a huge jump in the type of competition that he's been facing, and I think they've seen that. But they've been so surprised with just, his ability to not back down in those situations, and to kind of embrace them—that you know they, they chose to bring him along, you know, right away, and again throw him right in, you know, into the wolves and, and giving him minutes in his first few games. So I, I, it did surprise me a little bit because you just see that as kind of the process in so many in, in that so many teams take nowadays. You know, you pick a guy who's 18 or any international player, and you let him season for a little bit, and then you bring him over when he's more ready, and you're going to have to do less with his development. I think um, in some talks with some people with the Bucs, what they their line of thinking was is I think they wanted to be more in control with the development process, and that's admirable, but it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, and you know, ultimately all the, the blame or the praise is going to fall on them. And um, it's just, it's you know, it's going to take time. So I think them bringing him over kind of brought up two arguments, and they're you know, they're polar arguments. One in being, is he ready, and do they think he's ready to immediately contribute? And two, maybe it's just them, it's just them wanting to be in control of of what he's being taught. But I mean, they talk to anybody in that organization, talk to any of his teammates, and it's an immediate smile, it's immediate excitement. And they think he can be really, really good.
0: He he absolutely can be. It's and and the other part of it is it'll be interesting to see with him and also Rudy Jabert, who was another guy who I thought would season overseas, that there's a there's a conversation that has been kind of festering about that it might be better to just develop these players in house and you lose some financial flexibility, but you gain control of their development. So we're gonna have two interesting Test cases for that in coming in the draft at the same time.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and and like you said, you lose you know the monetarily you hurt a little bit, but if you have faith in your front office and you you know your player development coaches and, and things and and in, and in your culture, then this has to be you know it's a, it's at least a smart way to go about it to see you know the process from the ground floor. You know it's it's. It's risky, and, you know, it's not something that everybody does. But, I mean, I think the dividends are higher if if you know what you're putting into a kid and if you see him on a daily basis as opposed to just kind of having a few guys go over to Europe and, and see what somebody who's not even employed with your organization is doing with your own draft pick. It does sound a little silly when you say it that way, but a lot of teams find success that way. So it's going against the curve a little bit, but ultimately time will tell, And I think the Bucks like this kid so much that they're willing to put that kind of work in.
0: It's great. The article, you should definitely read it. It's on the front page of realgm.com right now. And thank you so much for coming on. It's been great to to have your insight.
1: I appreciate it, Danny. Anytime. Take care.
0: Take care. Thanks again to Andrew Perna. If you want to read any of his pieces, they're on realgm.com, and you can search him for an author or you can see a lot of them on the front page and click in from there. Next up, we have Jonathan Santiago. He writes for Cowbell Kingdom, which is a part of the ESPN True Hoop Network. And he's talking about, first we talk about the possible relocation, first to Anaheim, then to Seattle, and how Sacramento retained the Kings, the progress in the new arena deal, and then a long discussion on where the Kings are going now that they're settled in. So the ownership group, DeMarcus Cousins, Ben McElmore, and everything else. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks, Danny. I appreciate it, man.
0: So one of the things that I wanted to go through early on in this podcast was to walk people who weren't as, as into it through the whole drama with Sacramento and potentially losing the team.
2: Okay, so this, it's, a very, it's a very long story. I mean, we can go back two years to the relocation attempt to Anaheim, which failed because the NBA, uh, the NBA did not want this team to move then. And then the year after that, you go through uh, a period in which the city of Sacramento does everything that's, that that is asked of, to to come up with a viable arena plan, to uh, to house the Sacramento Kings in the downtown area. You have everybody on board: city, the NBA, AEG, the major arena operator throughout the entire world. And then everyone, you know, everyone's on board except for the malouves They tank the deal, and we're back to square one. And then a couple months later, you see that we're, we end up with this whole Seattle saga, which essentially was, you know, the final chapter in, in this, uh, this whole relocation story that we've seen develop over the last few years. And, and realistically, a lot of people, you know, you I'm sure your listeners saw the reports back in January. I know Adrian Wojnarowski had an unnamed source who told him that the, the deal was at first and goal on the one. And that it was, you know, it, it was basically for everybody outside of Sacramento, the team, the Kings moving to Seattle was a foregone conclusion. And a lot of people kind of made that made that assumption based on things on the surface. I mean, obviously, Seattle is one of the top 15 television markets in the country. And Sacramento is, is 20th in the land. And, you know, Seattle has a lot of appealing appealing assets that that make it seem like a much better market to house an NBA team than Sacramento. But the one thing a lot of people forgot about, and that's why I recapped it just a moment ago, was that the city of Sacramento consistently showed that it had a commitment to the NBA. When the, when the Maloofs tried to move the team to Anaheim in 2011, Kevin Johnson, the ex Phoenix Suns point guard now mayor here in Sacramento rounded up corporate support to show that there was still business will here in the area uh, to keep the Sacramento Kings around. He came up with an arena plan with, with major players uh, to build a brand new building in the downtown area for, for, for the King. And all of us here, we were kind of looking at it and saying, well, that's, it's kind of unfair that if they, if they wind up leaving, they do everything right. Yet they wind up with nothing. So that's kind of what, what happened in, in the Seattle process, you know, the battle between Seattle and Sacramento. The city of Sacramento was was following the NBA's processes. You know, Kevin Johnson rounded up all these investors. He got Vivek Ronadive from the Golden State Warriors. He got Mark Manstrom, the founder of uh, 24 Hour Fitness, you know, the Jacobs family of Qualcomm down in San Diego, all these billionaires to come together to purchase the team the right way. And... You know, the NBA looked upon it and said there's still support here for this team. There's not only fan support, but there's political will to get things done. And that's why we, 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 we are erring towards keeping the team in Sacramento. That was something that, that, that didn't happen in Seattle when the Sonics left back in 2007. You had fan support. The fans wanted to keep the Sonics there. But, you know, the political support there was toxic. It was, it was actually non-existent for the Seattle Supersonics in terms of getting an arena done, and and you had an ownership group that that didn't really want to get an arena done down there as well. So, you know, mix all of those things in together, it it, it just doesn't work out. But obviously the political will, the political support here, with, with Kevin Johnson being the maestro that he is, that's the reason the Sacramento Kings are still the Sacramento Kings.
0: So thank you for that. And from what you know, how different is the arena plan from the one that that is looks like is going to happen compared to the one in 2011 that the Maloofs nixed?
2: Okay, so the major difference between this plan now and the uh, and the the plan from from 2000 2012 is that this arena will now be built at the downtown plaza, which is. Which is essentially the core of downtown Sacramento. It's actually an old outdoor, indoor, outdoor shopping mall that was owned by uh, Westfield. You know, Westfield owns a ton of malls and shopping centers, not just in in the states, but across across the world. They've purchased most of that land. They have they have the majority of their land. There's just one parcel left that they have to purchase um, in order to get this thing done. And the, and, and the plan in 2012 called for the arena to be built in the rail yards, uh, which is like the large, one of the, I believe, could be wrong on this, but the, it is the largest urban, undeveloped, uh, undeveloped piece of urban infill in like the entire, entire country. So they've wow. been trying to get something, you know, jump started there to, to, get that going and, and get development land development going in that area. And that was going to be the catalyst there. But, you know, in reality, I think for where they want this arena to be and where they're planning to have it, it makes more sense to have the arena in the downtown core. Um, because it's, as I said, it's right there in the middle of downtown. This is the heart of downtown. I mean, it'll, the, the arena will, will lead out onto K street. Well, the, the K street mall, Which you know, obviously, if you walk down the K Street Mall, it leads you right to uh, the State Capitol building. So, you know, as far as 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 far as the location of the arena, that's that's the major difference. I mean, that that's really what is what is different about this plan versus the others. And and you know what, another thing that's different is that um, the 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 ownership group is throwing in more money. There's going to be a larger investment by the Sacramento Kings ownership group versus the plan in 2012. In 2012, they had to get an arena operator like AEG to kick in some money because the, the Malus weren't really willing to put in a ton of money into the project. Whereas you've got, you know, these owners here, they're, they're basically willing to, to pay a large portion of this project. And if there are any cost overruns, um, they are willing to take care of that. So the city is capped off. The city is capped off at a, at a certain amount. I've got to check that. I always forget the exact numbers um, on on what they are planning. But you know, I think they are at this point, I think it's around 387 million. I could be wrong. But, um, you know, obviously, these things wind up being a little bit more expensive than, than, uh, than you plan for and hope for. But that's why you've got an ownership group with the deep pockets that they have to, to hopefully kick in the extra, extra money that will be needed to, to get this thing going by 2016.
0: Absolutely. So, so the, is, the idea is that the arena will be completed by 2016? Is that, the, is that the goal? Yes,
2: the target goal is to have the arena open by October 2016. They have to go through the environmental review process, which they are undergoing right now that started last spring. It should be wrapped up by uh, by spring of next year, and um, I think they want to try and break ground. They'll they'll probably try and break down break ground by by uh, next August or something. You know, they'll have to demolish the current uh, downtown Plaza Mall, and I think they will, uh, will try to get that done by June or so of next year. But you know, I, as far as everything everything is on track uh, for for this thing to for this thing to be built and for this to uh, be the final resting place of the Sacramento team.
0: Great. Uh, one other one thing that I did not expect early on in the process, but is is really nice now. You mentioned that Sacramento did everything right as a city and all of that, and in a way, you could argue that they ended up with a better solution for them and the team than they would have had if the original deal had gone through.
2: Yeah. No, they did. I mean, you know, was it was very, it was it was a very painful process for everybody involved when the Maloofs backed out of. Uh, the deal, because, you know, they came to that agreement um, at All-Star Weekend in Orlando in 2012, and you had Gavin Maloof shedding tears, Joe Maloof, um, you know, very, very emotional. The, the one Maloof brother who wasn't very emotional about things was, was George Maloof, you know, the, the business mind of that family. And, you know, a couple of days later, they had their first game of of the second half of the season against the Utah Jazz and Kevin Johnson and and the Maloofs come out on the middle of the court, uh, raising their arms in victory like they had just won a championship. And then not even, you know, not even a few weeks later, you have the Maloofs backing out of the deal, which is something that they've had a history of doing. They did this in 2006 when when there was a proposal to fund uh, the building of another arena uh through through the raising of taxes. And they they were on board uh until the last minute. They they backed out of measures Q and R and and that wound up tanking the deal and, and putting uh putting the city of Sacramento into a uh into this downward spiral that they faced the last few years of whether or not the team was going to stay or go. But yes, Daddy you're right. They did they did wind up with a better deal in the end. They wound up with brand new owners First and foremost, that's the most important thing and and a better arena location.
0: Do you have a feel yet for the new ownership and management group? Yeah,
2: you know, I I like them. I mean, obviously, they they understand that this is a process and the Sacramento Kings right now, as a team, the product on the court, they are seeing their struggles out there. And, And they know that this is, realistically, they know that the goal for them is to hopefully make the playoffs by... The time that new arena opens in 2016, 2017. You know, it would be great for them to make the playoffs this year. It would be great for them to make the playoffs next year. But realistically, that is their goal. And I think the ownership group here, they're even killed. I mean, you've got a lot of smart businessmen involved. Vec Ronadive, you know, he, he was out there with, with the Golden State Warriors. I'm sure he learned a lot with, with, uh, with Joe Lacob and, and Peter Gruber. Uh, in terms of how they ran that team and changed the culture of that franchise around. And, you know, a guy like Mark Mastroff, who, who really has been kind of underrated in this, in this whole uh, whole process. I mean, he is the guy, he's, the, he's probably the main reason Shaquille O'Neal is the minority owner in the Sacramento Kings. You know, his relationship with Shaq helped bring, you know, some star power to this, to this franchise. And, uh, you know, realistically, I think this ownership group, they've got the right idea. They, you know, this team was in the dark ages when it came to statistical analysis and, and player evaluation. And now you have, now they've put a front office in place that is embracing, you know, the, the new wave, so to speak, of, of player evaluation and talent evaluation in the NBA. And that only bodes well for this franchise going, going into the future.
0: And the other interesting dynamic of their ownership group is that both that Vivek was a part of the Warriors group and Mastrov was one of the people, one of the parties who wanted to buy the Warriors when they went up for sale. So they, you can definitely tell that they have a passion for this and that it's something that they really want to do. Yeah,
2: no, th- that's for sure. I mean,
0: out of, out of
2: the you – know, this team has like 30 or 40 owners now, something like that, because they've got a, you know a ton of smaller minority owners who bought – who also bought part of the general partnership that was sold by the Malouf family. Um, in addition to like the, you know, the other four or five minority owners who stayed on board with the team during the sale. So, and, and when it comes to Mastrov and, and, and Vivek, those are probably the two owners that I've seen around the most. I've seen them, you know, I, I've, I've seen Vivek at practices. I've seen, uh, Mastrov at practices during the, during the draft workout process. You know, all throughout, those are the guys, and, and you know, they're obviously two of the two of the largest investors in this team that are that are right here in the area. You know, you do have investors like Paul Jacobs, who is based out of San Diego, Raj Bathal, who is based out of um, Los Angeles. So obviously, those guys are going to be, you know, not not here as much as as Vivek and and Mark Mastrov are, but they do they do have a passion for. For turning this team around and for uh, for making the Sacramento Kings into what they once were, which is, you know, uh, a perennial powerhouse in the NBA.
0: Moving more onto the product on the floor, how did you feel personally about the the timing and everything of the extension for Demarcus Cousins?
2: You know what? Uh, honestly, when it was when it was discussed, we you know we I, I had my reservations about it. I I was like most. Who kind of thought, well, why not let him earn it this year? Why not let him play out his contract? And if he is the guy that he he says he is, you know, he can play out his contract and get the extension later. But at the same time, too, you have to understand personalities. And, and the one thing I do understand about DeMarcus Cousins is he is a guy who is big on trust. And he is a guy who is very bright and understands what's going on around him. And when you have an ownership group come in, you have a new front office come in, and you have a new coaching staff come in and say that they're going to bring, you know, a, a change of culture to the Sacramento Kings, and then they go and talk about you as being possibly one of the best big men in the NBA, to not Pay him at that point, there would be a little bit of disconnect in the message that they were selling um, to the media and to this franchise and to the players on this team um, for him. You know, and I think that's a main reason why he got the extension is they wanted to show him, look, we believe in you. I mean, I've talked to Pete Delisandro a-, a number of times, the new general manager of the Sacramento Kings, and he said, look, Demarcus is our guy, and we wanted to show him that. He is our guy, and we trust him, and we believe in him. And what better way to to do that than by giving him his extension, extension now, as opposed to just waiting things out. Because if they didn't give him the extension, you know, you wind up being in a place where maybe he starts thinking like, okay, they're bringing in all this change, but, you know, they're calling me like the franchise player, yet I'm not being treated like the franchise player. You know, you don't want him. Going into the season, discontent or malcontent, whatsoever, and plus at the same time you got to look at the market. He's he was going to command this kind of money, regardless. You know, if if he were heading into next offseason, he was going to command a big dollar figure from anyone. I mean, there were teams out there who who were going to be willing to pay him the 62 plus million dollars that you know he he received in his extension from the Sacramento Kings. So. Obviously, if things don't work out with DeMarcus Cousins, it's not like his contract is immovable. So I think, you know, as I said, at first I was leery of it, but in the end I understood the process. I understood that realistically you couldn't have a disconnect in your message when you're talking about changing the culture um, with the guy who you're claiming is your franchise player.
0: Yeah, what's interesting about it, I was critical of it more from a GM perspective, just in terms of having leverage doing it. But what's interesting is you laid out the 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 right case for why there was more to it than just the raw numbers. And it's it's also the other point about it is that he's so young; he's still only twenty three, and it's and his birthday was recent, so he's a young twenty three that he'll be he'll be young enough that unless he goes off a cliff, which is possible, of course, that he will have value. You know, it's not going to be a situation where let's say like Amari Stoudemire right now, where you can't pay somebody to take it.
2: Exactly. I, I, I totally agree. I think again, you're at a point where if it doesn't work out with DeMarcus Cousins, if you're a team like the Dallas Mavericks who've shown interest in DeMarcus Cousins, you, you will look at DeMarcus and say, okay, the Kings messed up. That that's not, that's their fault. That, that he, he, he hasn't panned out because they don't know how to handle him. We know how to make him better. We'll figure out a way to get him incorporated in our, in our system. We'll make a trade for him. So, as I said, I don't think his contract is immovable. It's not going to be tough to, to deal if it doesn't work out. But thus far, I think, you know, we're only a few games into the season. and obviously, the team has struggled. But DeMarcus, for the most part, hasn't struggled. You know, he had, he had two games. One against the Warriors and one against the Hawks, where he didn't really show up, and and some of the you know the 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 problems that he's encountered the last his 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 previous three years in the league popped up again. But for the most part, he's been he's been pretty consistent. You know his field goal percentage that's the main thing that I'm watching for him this year. He's becoming a much more efficient scorer. Whereas in years past, he'd be a guy who was shooting in the low 40s. He can't be an All Star if he's not shooting at least 50 percent from the field and he, he's addressing that right now so you know right now i i could say that that uh, that things are are working out for the sacramento Kings in their favor when it comes to when it came to giving him that extension
0: obviously it's hard to know for sure but do you have a do you have a feel on whether it was a credible threat should they have made it for him to sign the qualifying offer and then be an unrestricted free agent after another year
2: yeah, I don't think that would have, I, honestly, I don't think they, he would have, he would have signed a qualifying offer. I think he would have wound up signing an offer sheet. If he went into restricted free agency next year, he probably would have signed an offer sheet somewhere, um, to a team that has cap room and, you know, either the Kings would have matched or, or done a sign and trade. But I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't have thought that that would be a, a possibility for him.
0: Moving, moving on, uh, well, so I I would say from a from a non Kings insider perspective that the second most interesting piece on that team is Ben Macklemore. How have you? How, what have you seen so far from him in terms of his potential impact?
2: Well, he's you know I I to me and, and again like I, I don't want people to think that you know this guy is he, he's he's the second coming of who I'm about to mention or or the combination of players that I'm about to mention. But he's he's like a freakish combination of Ray Allen and Vince Carter to me. I mean, he, he's got the shooting motion. He's got the shooting stroke. He, he runs. He, the way he moves without the ball is incredible. I think that's been the most impressive part, and that's where he's very Ray Allen-esque. He can, he can run around in the half-court set, find ways to get himself open, and he's got a quick enough release, you know, to get his shot off. And where the Vince Carter comparison comes in, his athleticism. I mean, this is a guy who potentially in one year might be able to win a dunk contest and a three-point contest at All-Star Weekend at the same time. Like, that's the kind of talent that Ben McLemore has. But, you know, again, will he become that? We don't know. I do think he has a much better chance of reaching that potential with this incarnation of the Sacramento Kings. If we're talking about Ben McLemore being drafted by, you know, the Jeff Petrie, Maloof run Sacramento Kings, I, I would be leery of it. I, I would think, you know, it, he might not be able to reach that potential. But because there is the right kind of structure here in Sacramento with the front office run by Pete Del with the, the coaching staff run by Michael Malone and the ownership group led by Vivek Ranadive, I think he does have a chance to be a pretty special player in this league. And and realistically, when you get players as raw as he is in terms of talent, that's what they need. They need structure. And, uh, again, I think he, he really has impressed me a lot, um, you know, his first few games. He's not, you know, he, I, I, it wouldn't shock me if he wound up becoming, you know, the starting shooting guard here, um, in the not too distant future.
0: Do you have a sense yet of how the point guard situation is going to resolve? They added Gravis Vasquez for basically nothing. They got him in the Tyreek Evans sign-in trade, but they already had Isaiah Thomas, who the team seemed to like, at least the previous management. So do you have a sense of kind of how that's going to work out, whether they're going to – in terms of playing time and moving forward?
2: Well, right now, I mean, they're kind of in flux. I, I think right now what we're seeing is, is, an, is a not-too-healthy Grievous Vasquez um, on the court for the Sacramento Kings and and that's caused them to overthink things. I wrote a piece on Cowbell Kingdom uh, a week ago about this issue and he he's a guy who, who's very passionate, plays a game with, with, uh, with a lot of heart and a lot of grit and a lot of uh, again a lot of passion. and he's just not hundred percent yet. He isn't the player that he knows he's capable of being. But he's been given the keys to be the starting point guard for this team because, in my opinion, he gives he he is the right kind of point guard for DeMarcus Cousins. He is the guy who is going to set up and look to create for teammates as opposed to score for himself first. And that's and that's you know that's really why Isaiah Thomas is coming off the bench. Um, Isaiah Thomas is a guy who is you know. Capable of being a spark plug, capable of getting his own points and and scoring, and also making plays for others. But he is a score-first point guard, and realistically, when your when your best player is Demarcus Cousins, um, and he needs to be fed the ball down low, you need a guy in the game uh, who is going to facilitate the ball to him. And I think that you know that that is Gravis Vasquez right now. You know, long term, who knows? I mean, obviously this team will be making a lot of changes in the next few years and he is going to be a restricted free agent at the end of the season. But they do like Gravis. They do like Isaiah too. And they have you know, they do have a young guy in Ray McCallum that they drafted in the second round of this year's this year's draft that they are very high on as well. So you know, the, the point guard situation right now, Gravis-Vasquez, I think, will continue to be the starter. But who knows? It's possible that Isaiah Thomas winds up starting in the backcourt with Gravis. And I think that combination actually works out pretty well.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting possibility. I'm a huge fan of Ray McCallum, have been for quite a while. The other guy who I feel like we have to bring about in the backcourt situation is Jimmer Fredette. <laughs> of course. Where, where, does the, where does that all go?
2: Yeah, I, you know, with Jimmer, he obviously hasn't really gotten a chance to play much uh, to start the season, and at least this time he understands his role. I mean, the last few years under Keith Smart, you know, Keith, God bless his soul, he's he's such a nice guy. He didn't, it was almost like he didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, um, and so he kind of just didn't. He was he was very abstract and vague about what players' roles were on this team. But Mike Malone has been very direct and straightforward. With guys, including Jimmer Fredette, and had said, you know, that Jimmer was not in the rotation at that particular time um, last week. Obviously, things change. Things are are changing right now for the Sacramento Kings. They are in flux. Um, Jimmer Fredette did get to see his first playing time of the season against the uh, Portland Trailblazers on Saturday. And uh, I think, you know, we're going to start to see a little bit more of him because realistically, you know, Jimmer Fredette, Marcus Thornton, they're kind of the same player. And Marcus Thornton has not been giving anything to the Sacramento Kings thus far, uh, despite getting the opportunity to start for this team. I mean, we're looking at a guy who's shooting, you know, in the low 30s um, in field goal percentage, um, in the high 20s in three-point percentage, and in only average—it is averaging less than 10 points a game in close to 30 minutes a game. And... He's a guy who's supposed to be a scorer, and he hasn't been able to do that. So, you know, to me, we're going to see a little bit more of Jimmer Ferdet. He's going to get his opportunity as, as a two-guard, as a combo guard, playing primarily the two. You know, he's not going to be playing much point guard for this team when you have Gravis Vasquez, who's a more natural passer. And Isaiah Thomas, who's probably, you know, a much better point guard, or has better point guard skills than... Than a but as a part-time playmaker and as a shooter for this team, I think Jimmer Fredette can help them. And you know, I think we're going to see a little bit more of him as Mike Malone continues to to tinker and figure out his rotation and his lineup.
0: Plus, you have the benefit that if if he gets time and does well, that at least then, if another team is interested, they could get him now. And then they, while he's going to be an unrestricted free agent due to them declining his option, they would have the advantage in terms of bird rights and getting a, and getting a, a real feel for what he is as a player. Exactly,
2: I think you know it, it does benefit them in that sense that if he can all of a sudden maybe boost his value, you know, in terms of, of of his of his statistics, maybe maybe generate some interest out there in the open market because with him not playing, he has no value whatsoever, and 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 that conversely. Applies to Marcus Thornton. You can kind of understand why Marcus Thornton has gotten this opportunity despite having, you know, a subpar preseason compared to Jimmy Fredette, because Marcus Thornton makes around $16 million over the next two years, and for the most part, that contract is immovable. movable. He is going to be with the Sacramento Kings through this year and through next year, so you can't really blame Mike Malone for for giving Marcus Thornton. Um, the opportunity ahead of Jimmer for debt. you know, considering that Marcus Thornton has that contract and considering that Marcus Thornton has more experience in the league than Jimmer for debt. But at this time now you got to go with a guy who, who is going to give you something. And we haven't really, we haven't really gotten a chance to see what Jimmer can do. And when we have, he, he's for the most part delivered, you know, in the small opportunities that he's gotten in his three year career in the NBA.
0: Looking more to the future, what do you see as the biggest position or role of need for this team as they try to make it more towards playoff relevance? No doubt it's small forward. I don't even
2: even have to hesitate there. I don't even have to think about what this team needs most. It is a small forward. They have not had a small forward, a great wing player, since Ron Artest's Metal World Peace left this team via trade to the Houston Rockets. What was it six years ago? They have not had a guy who 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 can hold down that small four position. You, right now, you have an aging John Salmons, who you know in his prime was one of the better uh, perimeter defenders in the NBA, one on one man up, man to man wing defenders in the NBA. But he's you know he's an elder statesman. He's 34 years old. He's in the final year of his contract, um, and you know he doesn't really have much left to give. Um, Travis Outlaw, you know a guy who was great in his early years with the Portland Trail Blazers as their six man, has found you know is starting to to be a contributor this year to this team, but realistically he's not the long term solution there. And Luke Bamute, you know we haven't gotten a chance to see Luke very much like Jimmy Fredette. He got an opportunity to play against the Portland Trail Blazers on Saturday, but. Realistically, Luke Bamute is a veteran in this league who is 27 years old and has has a bum knee. So he's not necessarily the long-term fix for the Sacramento Kings at small forward. So that is a position to watch for as this new regime retools and rebuilds this roster in, in the small forward spot.
0: If a best of both worlds person isn't out there, you know, let's say a Wiggins or somebody like that, would you? If it were your choice, would you lean more towards somebody who's a defender or somebody who's more of a scorer? I would look
2: for somebody who's a defender. I think the perfect, the perfect kind of wing for them would be a guy who can just defend and shoot threes, a guy who can space the floor, um, a guy who doesn't necessarily need the ball in his hands a lot to to be effective. Because obviously, when you have a guy like DeMarcus Cousins was going to command a lot of touches in the post you know you don't want to take away those touches and that's a part of that's part of the reason why Tyreek Evans is no longer part of this team because he was a guy who was ball dominant needed needed the basketball in his hands to be effective and, and that kind of impeded DeMarcus Cousins's progress to becoming the player that everyone knows that he's capable of being so you know I think you're, you're not necessarily looking for a superstar, obviously, if they could get Andrew Wiggins in the draft and they wind up uh, with that number one pick or top three pick wherever Andrew Wiggins winds up um, in, in next year's draft, I' no doubt about it they'll they'll take him, but you know for what they need, you know if they could get a guy who can just space the floor with his shooting and also play solid perimeter perimeter defense and team defense, I think they would be happy there.
0: Even though it doesn't necessarily fit a position of need, I, I also have thought a couple times in the last couple days, seeing him play a little bit in college, that Randall would be an amazing fit next to Cousins over the long term.
2: Yeah, I know we, we actually, you and I actually talked about that a little bit in you know at the Kings Warriors game about a week and a half ago when I saw you there, and and you know to be honest, for me I haven't watched enough of the kid to give you a, a valid opinion on. On how he would fit next to Demarcus Cousins, so I will I will defer uh, my knowledge to you uh, when it comes to comes to Julius Randle. But you know, it, it's possible. I mean, I don't I don't know if you know Patrick Patterson is, is a long term solution for this team at power forward. He's a guy who hasn't been produ- very productive for the Sacramento Kings early, and I, I'm not quite sure if if, uh, if Jason Thompson is either. I mean, Jason Thompson realistically is a duplicate, less talented version of DeMarcus Cousins. And is he part of their long-term plans? I'm not sure. And right now he's coming off the bench primarily playing as a backup center uh, to DeMarcus. So, you know, they could – I mean, outside of center, every position on this team is up for grabs. I mean, long-term, you have the center position locked down. You do have the shooting guard, hopefully in the long term, locked down with Ben McLemore. But, you know, point guard, small forward, power forward, the Kings need to make some changes there.
0: Thank you so much for your time. It was great talking with you, and great to have the Sacramento story more out there. Hey, no problem,
2: Danny. Anytime. Feel free to call me up or have me on the show uh, anytime you need me.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks again to Jonathan Santiago of Cowbell Kingdom for his insight. It's As somebody who lives in Northern California but not in the Sacramento area, I'm so happy for the city that they fought hard to keep their team and they're getting to keep it. And it's a good, positive example for other smaller markets that can be hesitant about their team possibly moving somewhere else, especially with Seattle staying as a big potential market. It was great to have him on. If you want to read his stuff, it's on cowbellkingdom.com. It's a part of the True Hoop Network. Give it a look. Also, thanks to Andrew Perna of Real GM for coming on. You can see his stuff at realgm.com. Again, thank you for listening, I really appreciate it, Uh, the hope is that the show continues to get better, and as I've always said, it's a collaborative process, so your insight and your input will play a major role in making this thing better. And a big part of that collaboration moving forward is getting the best possible guests for the show. I appreciate your input on that, you can tweet me at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, more importantly in some ways when you do that it'd be great if you also reach out to the person that you want to have on and tell them hey you should do the show it it's a great way to get it out there i already have a great group of people that are coming up in the future very very excited about it and it's always good to have more it can help lead to a better discussion and that leads to a better product so thank you again for listening and make it a great day when you don't go to geico.com car insurance can seem intense Like breakup RB intense.
1: I thought you said you love a sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me.
0: Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift for